it's my pleasure to have you join us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and every dollar you got. I want you to get the most use and value out of it. Our show is about you, and our websites are too. Clark.com, ClarkDeals.com, and we're going to talk in just a few minutes in today's Clark Rageous Moment about a no deal, something that is a gotcha and what you need to know about it. And coming up yet later, healthcare in the United States has a lot of messy things going on, especially on the cost side. I want to talk about experiments going on to try to reduce the cost of medical care at the same time, more importantly, well, I guess they're equally important, improve the quality of your health. So your physical health and your physical health, both are on the good side of the ledger. I want to talk right now about something that is really important to your wallet, and that is when you buy a vehicle that you pay so much for it, but when you decide that that vehicle no longer is going to be in your life, what's it worth at that point? Because that's really the true cost of that vehicle is what you paid for it versus what it's worth when you get rid of it. That difference. Well, J.D. Power has crunched the numbers and come up by various vehicle categories which vehicles hold their value the best. If you buy them new, that they're going to be worth the most in their category when you do ditch that vehicle. So let's start with the biggest vehicles first. And that would be large SUVs. The Chevy Tahoe, the GMC Yukon, and the Toyota Sequoia hold their value the best of big SUVs. When you look at Midsize SUVs, the Toyota 4Runner, midsize pickup truck, Toyota Tacoma, and I should have talked about uh, big pickups as well because a lot of people buy the big pickup trucks. The GMC Sierra and Chevy Silverado in various versions of those hold their value the best in the big pickups. And compact SUVs, Honda CRV, Toyota RAV4, and Jeep Wrangler. And large cars, the Dodge Charger. Gosh, people have Dodge Chargers, just love that thing. The Toyota Avalon and the Chrysler 300. Midsize, Honda Accord, Toyota Camry, always, right? Year after year. And one I would not have thought of, the Kia Optima. Then if you look at, see, I'm doing this completely opposite of how you would normally hear a list because I started with the biggest vehicles first. Compact cars, Honda Civic, Subaru WRX, and Toyota Prius. Small cars, Honda Fit, Toyota Yaris. I say it right? Kim of our crew has, I always say Yaris, and she says, no, it's Yaris. So there you have it. And there's another list, which is a lot longer, of vehicles that the resale value of them, atrocious. 
And so when you buy those vehicles new, later on, you've got a brutal time with how that value of that vehicle has dropped and the ultimate cost that that means you bear. How do you avoid all that with any vehicle? You know, you know. Yeah, I see you raising your hand right there. Okay, the deal is you drive a vehicle till the wheels fall off. So you have to leave it by the side of the road and then you don't have to worry about depreciation and how the value of a vehicle drops like a rock in the first four years of ownership. Tiffany is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Tiffany. Hi. Tiffany, you're buying a new vehicle. Yes. So you have a a difficult situation you're bringing to me. What's your story? So my husband and I need a new car. Our car is, um, we've been putting a lot of money into it. So there were two um, things that I really didn't know how to handle that I wanted to talk to you about. The first thing is that um, I don't have a very high credit score. My credit score is 669. And so 669, I'm sure, uh, 669 is not terrible. Oh, um, that, well, that makes uh, me happy. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, you, when you get up into the upper 600s, uh-huh. you don't have terrible credit and you don't have great credit. It's not, it's, okay. it's not the best and it's not the worst. Okay. So what I was wondering is um, the best way to negotiate with... Um, a dealership on making sure I get what I want, but not with an outrageous interest rate or very high payment. Okay. So actually you never want to get your loan from a car dealer. Okay. You always want to go to a credit union. Okay. Are you a member of a credit union? I am. Yes. Our house loan is through, um, our mortgage is through a credit union. All right, so you should go to the credit union. They're going to immediately see your score, and they will be able to tell you on, they use a sliding scale at credit unions. Rather than saying yes or no to loans, credit unions use a interest rate that moves up as your credit score goes down or the loan rate goes uh, down if your credit score goes up. You, I mean, you get the idea that it's, that the better your sure. score, the lower the rate, the worse your score, the higher the rate. So the right. credit union is where you want to go for this reason. If you go to a dealer and you say, hey, I, I got to get the best deal I can on this, what happens many times is there's too many moving parts. So if you focus just on what kind of loan they can get you on the vehicle, they turn around and charge you more for that vehicle because, hey, right. we got a buyer here who's only looking at the loan so we can run up the cost of the vehicle on them. If mm-hmm. you go and you know what money you're good for ahead of time at the credit union, even if the dealer later offers you a better deal on the loan, then you could take it. But you go in with a much greater position of strength because all you're focused on at the dealer is getting the best deal on the vehicle you want to get. Right. So let's talk about the whole premise of the repairs you've had to make to the vehicle you have. How much in repairs have you had to spend? How much have you had to spend on these repairs that are getting Um, you down? 
in the past year, we spent a little over $6,000. <gasps> oh, my goodness. Car. How old yeah, is that trip. vehicle? It's a 2014. It's not very old. How many um, miles does it have on it? It has about 110,000 miles. We do a lot of driving. Okay. Um, my husband works out of state, so we drive a lot. So um, we've had to buy a new transmission. We've had to um, replace some sensors. And here, just currently, we found out that the transmission that we got was a used transmission because that was all we could afford. Um, we just found out that that transmission isn't working and it's not under warranty anymore so we would probably oh. have to get oh. another one and we're also upside down on our car so we owe we're upside down about six thousand um, dollars for what it's worth and so we didn't know if it's better we have the six thousand dollars saved we didn't know if it was better to pay that on our car loan so that we aren't upside down or if it was better to use that $6,000 as a down payment getting right. another car. So I need to lay out for you, this is really bad, the situation you yes. describe, um, because you were in a bind. It's like you're painted into a financial corner here. Because right. the when you throw in the additional variable that you're upside down on a uh, what's now a six-model-year-old vehicle with a hundred and something miles, that's mm -hmm. frightening how much upside down you are. And if you don't repair it, basically the cost of what you're going to suffer upside down grows even more. Right. So I would say in your case, there's always the concern about throwing good money after bad. Mm -hmm. But in your case, believe it or not, the probably the least bad option and i can't call it a good option is to actually take one more stab at repairing that vehicle okay. and drive it till you do literally have to leave it by the side of the road okay because the situation you describe is really messy because you're trying to get out of a vehicle that you're upside down in, and then you immediately go into an obligation on another vehicle that leads you to a huge cost monthly for many years to come. Right, and that's what I want to avoid. So the only way to potentially heal that is either you just buy a vehicle for the cash you have and you keep paying on the vehicle that doesn't uh, work right anymore, or you put money into that vehicle that doesn't work right and drive it as long as you possibly can. Okay. But um, there's always dealers that will say, don't worry about it, Tiffany. We got this for you. We're just going to take that. We're going to roll it into your new deal, and your troubles are going away. Uh-uh. Yes. It, it compounds itself because then you're way upside down on the next vehicle. At some point, you got to put in a fire break, and this is it that you take a chance on another repair and that you drive it as long as you possibly can and then your finances hopefully heal. Greg is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Greg. Hi, Clark. How you doing? I'm doing great. You know, I really appreciate all of your advice. And, Thank you. Uh, I've, always, I've always been pretty tight. My family and I have learned uh, a whole lot from you on how to really apply that tightness. 
Well, and, that uh, is great. Our, our, our son's now an avid listener, and Clarkisms are kind of a running joke between the two of us. So we really appreciate it. <laughs> Does your son have a favorite one, favorite of my phrases that I throw out there? Yes, he does. It's never, 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 not ever. So we, we toss that one out a lot. Okay, so I got to tell you, I learned uh, from a TV consultant, because you know I've done TV for uh, nearly 30 years, and very early in my TV days, a consultant was talking about if you really want to make a point, you got to say a word three times for it to register with people. And I've never forgotten that. And you saying back, never, 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 not ever, is like a perfect example about how it makes that point that sticks in somebody's mind. Well, fantastic. Glad to do that. And, and it is really stuck in our minds a lot of times when we do things. So Wonderful. Appreciate that. So, uh, so my wife and I have several, as you call them, back-of-the-wallet cards, and and we try to use them a couple of times a year to keep them in our mix. And one of the things I'll do is I'll go down to a gas station and annoy the person in line behind me and spend $5 on gas on each card. Um, but the last time uh, I got a credit score, one of the reasons that we were downgraded was that there were too many cards with balances. Ignore that. Like, Ignore that. What, okay. is your, what is your score? It's over 800. Yeah, so that's just... That is meaningless gibberish when you okay. get that as a response. That's a very tiny part of what makes up a score. And I only hear that from people who already have a very high score. I, I assumed you were going to be 760 or above when you cited that as a factor. So don't fret at all. Don't let, okay. don't let that throw you off the mark. Um, do what you're doing, although maybe just... Uh, don't use four different cards buying gas because of what it does for the person behind you if the store is busy. But getting each of those cards active through your year is very important to keep them in that mix that's got you over 800. Today's Clark Rageous moment is something that you will become more and more familiar with. It's the bait and switch that more and more hotels are implementing where they publish a really great rate on the room and then rip you off with poorly or not disclosed junk fees. There are now a number of lawsuits about the hotels charging facilities fees, resort fees, um, urban fees is another term used. And what it is is so that when you're shopping around, that a hotel looks like it's got a great rate. But then after you say, okay, I'll stay there, you find out at some point, often not well disclosed, many times not till you check in, that you owe another zillion dollars a night. Uh, I got to tell you a crazy thing. I was booking a hotel for a trip my son and I went on, and when I was shopping, I found a great rate on a really, really nice hotel. It was $90 a night for this really elegant hotel. And then I knew... I better go look around, see what gotchas there are. Well, there was a $56 a night resort fee and then a $26 a night parking fee. And this is an area where there's surface lots and parking is not precious at all. So my $90 room instead would have junk fees added on top of it of $82 
becoming 172. I want you to know that there's a plague of this, and the hotels are defiant about it. Both Marriott, uh, in particular, that's been sued, has made really tone-deaf statements about how wonderful it is they charge you these rip-off fees. Marriott, what is going on with you? And Hilton's been sued as well. This is inexcusable behavior. You should quote somebody a price, and the price should be the price. You shouldn't break your trust with your customer and cheat them with these fees. How did I handle that with that hotel? We stayed somewhere else. They didn't deserve my business. I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our main website. Clark deals where you go to save money each and every day. In our uh, political culture today, with the uh, inability of the political parties to work together in any reasonable way and even uh, trust each other to work together, it has been heartening to see at the state level various state efforts to try to come up with solutions to what ails our healthcare system in the U.S. It's been a, such a frustration for me that lifespans in the United States have declined to the level of third world countries, many third world countries, and Americans are living a shorter lifespan than people in any other developed country now, in spite of the fact that we spend way more on health care than anywhere else. And we have a terribly inefficient system with very poor incentives. And we argue so much about how we're going to cover people and uh, what kind of plans there should be that people buy coverage under and all that. But the reality is people are going to be frustrated until we improve the cost of health care in the United States, which is more than twice what it is in any other developed country. And in a share of our national wealth, it's crazy. We spend roughly 20% of our nation's wealth on health care, our nation's uh, overall output each year. The next closest, I think, in any country is maybe 8%. And then we have these terrible outcomes. So our system right now is non-functional. And I really am interested and you'll hear me continue to talk about experiments going on in various states where the political parties put aside the whole political label thing and try to come up with solutions. And one place that has been in the news lately is North Carolina, where now there's a special emphasis on getting people into regular primary care. So many people don't have a primary care doctor or nurse practitioner or physician's assistant, and so they don't seek care till something's really bad, wrong many times, and they end up often in a hospital emergency room. The hospital systems are all designed not for prevention, but to make big money when somebody ends up really, really ill. And so North Carolina 
is trying to turn that system upside down by creating financial incentives that reward providers for keeping people healthy rather than in treating the sick, which sounds uh, like an oversimplification. In many ways, it is. But the idea is to switch around the momentum that's going on around the country where these major hospital systems are trying to create a monopoly or near monopoly in various metro areas, control practices, control uh, diagnostics, and then make big money feeding patients into these hospital centers where they hope that they can run up a big bill to be reimbursed by the government or by insurance. It is a broken system because it rewards treating people that are sick instead of what North Carolina is trying to do, which is keeping people healthy. And don't know if North Carolina's attempt will be successful, but we do need to be experimental in this country, and we need to get away from silly narratives between partisans of either party and be solution-oriented about how we're going to tend to the nation's health and also our physical health with an aging population. And there are a world of financial problems for states and for the federal government that get solved if we get health care working in a good way instead of something that serves the needs a very narrow special interest of hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, and equipment manufacturers for medicine, and instead we focus on some of the simplest things, getting continuity of care for people that fixes things before they're really broken, the things we're fixing, you and me. And we need to get those lifespans back up it's just beyond it's just beyond imagination that we have deteriorating health and shortening lifespans in the wealthiest society in the history of humanity how are we messing up like this laura's with us on the clark howard show hi laura hello laura you were thinking of um buying part-time real estate in Florida, which puts you there along with millions of people who do that in the state of Florida. Tell me your situation. Well, I live in St. Louis. I'm tired of the winters. Uh, I'd like to move to Florida in the wintertime and then come back to St. Louis in the summer. But during the summer, rent that condo out to generate some cash flow. Sure. And as, as I said, that's a very, very common scenario where in Florida are you thinking you want to live? I was thinking either the Tampa area or Pensacola, Panama City. Okay, so the reason I asked that question is that in Florida, there are areas of the state that summer is peak season, and there are areas of the state that winter is peak season. So if your plan is to generate the most income you can when you go back to St. Louis, you would want to own a condo in a part of the state where when you're back in St. Louis is peak season, peak revenue for you. Right. 
And so uh, in the panhandle, the summer is the peak season. In the Tampa Bay area, that's kind of on a bubble where uh, you're you're really not in peak season during the summer. Okay. So if you were trying to make this the most economical decision you could, that would tend towards you doing the panhandle, except winter weather is not going to be nearly as pleasant in the panhandle as it would be in Tampa. So you have to choose the lifestyle versus the wallet. Where do you come down on that? I can handle the winners in, in the panhandle. How many winners have you spent doing uh, your winners in Florida? I haven't. Okay, then I'm gonna I'm gonna say something. I would say that puts you at step zero point five, and <laughs> zero point five is that you uh, rent in Florida a winner where you're staying in Florida for months. And do you know about the seven-month leases? No. All right. So the way Florida works is a lot of the seasonal rentals are for seven months. And the reason is is that then you don't have to collect and pay hotel-motel taxes. Instead, it's considered to be a long-term rental. So if you rented a place, even if you didn't stay seven months, but that you rent it for seven, it gives you a chance to do a test drive. And I'd want you to test drive uh, living in the panhandle for a seven-month period, which is different than going for a week or two. Right. See if it's where you want to be. And if you think, yeah, maybe not, then go rent the next season, the next winter season in the Tampa Bay area. You got plenty of time to buy a place, but you don't want to buy before you really are comfortable where you want to be. Right. It's a lot easier to obligate yourself to ownership than it is to get out if you think, what was I doing? Why did I think I want to be here? Also, the other thing you'll be able to learn in the time period you're a renter, you're going to be able to learn how how sophisticated the rental agencies are. Because you'll probably need to use a rental agency with you being that far across the country in Missouri from where you would own a property. And so you need to know that there are good, sophisticated operators who handle rental property in the place in the Panhandle or in the Tampa Bay area, you would think about owning a place. So I'd say you got a year or two of test riding this before you would really be able to make a good decision on buying. That makes sense. So I always like for people when you're thinking of moving somewhere to be a renter for a while. And my brother who uh, I talk about from time to time, my oldest brother, who he and his wife sold their home. They have no home. They just rent places. Even when they settle down, whatever that's going to be, they've been on the road now almost four years just traveling the world. Uh, He told me recently they don't intend to ever buy a place again because in vacation areas, there are so many good deals on rentals that they think they're going to be better off financially just renting 
months at a time rather than owning anywhere. I guess time will tell if they're right or wrong on that. Tony is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Tony. Hey, Clark. Thanks for taking my call. Certainly, Tony. How can I serve you today? Well, I had a uh, tax debt relief company question, and the wife and I, over the last couple of years, for just random reasons, uh, one, the major one being she went to work for a company during the summer from her other job, uh, and they weren't taking the taxes out of her payroll, and it was going direct deposit, and she never really paid attention to the stubs. You know, it makes it our fault, but got a letter from the IRS uh, saying that they want this year's taxes, and they're, it's the intent right now. And the total amount for the last three years, it's climbed up to a lo- just over $11,000. So kind of wondering. So that's you know, no fun. These- All right. Uh, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. So, Tony, let me understand something. Did you file your returns those three years, but just not pay all the tax, or did you not file returns? No, we've filed all. We've always filed the returns every, okay. every year. So don't fret. Don't. Oh fret. no, no. I'm just. You know, it's like okay. Well, what's the next step? <laughs> all right. What have you been thinking about doing? Well, for a while before uh, the move to downsize and whatnot, we. Uh, we were paying them a little bit. We were giving them like 50 bucks. I think it was a month. She was doing the bills. I was kind of getting caught up on it. But uh, we're to the point now with the letter with intent, which, like I said, you don't freak out, but you try and figure out, okay, well, what's the next step? You know, and it's hard enough to get a hold of them as, as is to talk to them about anything. Sure. Um, you know, and you do see the commercials for the tax relief companies. Oh, you know? oh, oh. Stay away. Stay away. Don't go near any of those. They're con artists. They're only going to make your life beyond miserable. Well, that's what I kind of was reading. That I read one that said, you know, a review or kind of inside of them was they could charge anywhere from three to $6,000 to help you. I'm like, well, what's Yeah, the you owe 11000 All right, so let me tell you what you do want. You don't want to deal with the IRS yourself. Okay. And what you should do is you hire a professional... With the amount of money you owe, you're likely going to be best served with what's known as an enrolled agent. Have you ever heard the term enrolled agent? (laughs) So an enrolled agent is somebody who is a tax expert, who is enrolled as a tax expert with the IRS, and they represent people at an hourly rate who have issues with the IRS. They know how the system works. They know how to deal with the circumstances you have. And all the IRS wants is to get its money eventually. A lot of people just ignore those notices. Thank goodness you're not ignoring them. Go hire an an enrolled agent. Okay. And he or she will tell you what's going to be realistic that the IRS will accept. And they will negotiate on your behalf with the IRS. None of this ridiculous money up front. They're just going to tell you what they're going to bill you per hour to represent you. Okay. Now, whereabouts would I find something like that? I mean, is that something you just I'm Google? Trying to or? Remember, I'm trying to remember if the IRS has a list of enrolled agents. I know we've given a source for that before. I'm trying to remember. Producer Joel is looking right now. Okay. There may be a trade association for enrolled agents. Um 
Yeah, there's a trade association. Of course there is. There's for everything. National Association <laughs> of Enrolled Agents. You go there okay. and you put in your zip code and you'll see who's available in your area. Okay. Let me repeat that. It's the National Association of Enrolled Agents. And okay. they're the real deal. They know what they're doing. And if you had a much more complicated situation with a lot more money involved, I'd probably guide you to a tax attorney. Your circumstance is made to order for an enrolled agent. Miss Rosetta joins us on the Clark Howard Show, and I understand you have a pitch from someone to wrap your car and pay you money for riding around with advertising on it. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. And how much is it that they say they'll pay you to put advertising on your car, put one of those wraps around it? Well, they cash your check that they sent me. Oh! Uh, oh! Okay. That is an old-timey scam. Let me tell you how old that scam is. That scam is now 20 years old. It's been around that long. And Mm -hmm. the cashier's check they've sent you is bogus. It will deposit in your account. They'll probably tell you at some point, is it for a few thousand dollars? Well, it's close to 1,500. Right. Then at some point, they'll tell you that they need some money back from you to pay for the installer who's going to wrap the car or whatever. Whatever money they get you to send back to them, you're going to lose. Because in a time period that may be two to six weeks, that cashier's check they've sent you will come back bouncing because it's phony. Okay. I, I was skeptical anyway, but they told me to deduct 500 Aha! See, that's the scam. You would have sent them back $1,000 you would never see again. So don't do it. They're crooks. If you ever want to have your vehicle wrapped, there's only one company we know of that is legit. It's called Rapify. I'm so glad you called. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.